Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that seeks out answers to questions large and small. My name is George Miller, and my guest in this program from the archive is Martin Kemp who's Emeritus Professor of the History of Art at the University of Oxford. I spoke to Martin when his book, The Human Animal in Western Art and Science, came out. It's a fascinating study of how we humans have, for millennia, from the time of cave paintings, thought about animals, and thought about ourselves in comparison to animals, depicting humans with supposed animal characteristics, and vice versa. As soon as humans make images, they make them about humans and they make them about animals Mm. and the relationship between them. The early cave paintings, yes, they have animals, they sometimes have hunters and so on. So this relationship and when evolution was discussed uh, post-Darwin in the 19th century, there's a lot of discussion about the competition for space Mm. and the idea that we competed with animals, particularly bears, for caves. Mm. So that sense both of of competition, but also there's a deep similarity, you know, that we need shelter, we need food and so on. So there's there's both a a sense of separating ourselves with them and somehow saying we're better than these animals, but at the same time realising that our animal needs, in a sense, uh, are the same. We compete with them. And this sort of problematic becomes explicit with the ancient Greeks because then then we we actually have written documents about how we thought about our bodies and animal bodies. And you you start by talking about the um, the four humours in the body and the four temperaments and the way in which certain animals were related to particular human types. That is a persuasive notion which lasts for, for centuries, isn't it? From Hippocrates, the great founder in a, in a way of, of medicine as it still is, and Galen, the great Alexandrian physician, they developed this idea of the four humours, four separate types, which actually works rather well with personalities still as it happens, and some psychologists still use some framework like that. Uh, the, the sanguine, the melancholic, the, uh, the choleric and the phlegmatic, mm. and the, these temperaments, And yes, they were seen as covering the whole of the natural world, not just human beings, but animals as well. And we all have imbalances. Somebody who is uh, melancholic becomes, as we would think, rather sad. Mm. But if an animal has a melancholic disposition, like an elk, and it looks sad, then it has a parallel with a human. So you've got these alignments of 
of animals and humans, and rulers and military leaders were aligned with lions. The lion was thought to be fierce but just, and you looked at people and you saw they had frizzy hair, they had strong teeth, they had big brows, mm. and uh, you know they looked leonine. It, it works surprisingly well in an odd kind of way. It hasn't got proper medical foundation, but it's an amazingly powerful explanatory framework. And you, in the book, you show um, some of the the artists who illustrated similarities between human types and animal types, and they're sort of lined up. But one of the images which struck me most forcefully going through the book was the Leonardo sketch for the Battle of Anghiari. It, this one doesn't seem to be sort of conscious. He's not trying to demonstrate something. It seemed to me he was he was practicing drawing horses' heads. And maybe you can say what you know what what happened. <laughs> Or what you imagine happened as he was doing that? Well, Leonardo in sort of fifteen three, fifteen four is planning this great equestrian battle for the Florentine Council Hall on an unprecedented scale. Michelangelo was doing another battle, so this big competition. And amongst the sketches, there is a wonderful page of a horses rearing and shrieking and sort of pulling mm. back their lips to reveal their teeth in a, in a very scary way. And it's very typical of Leonardo's thought that it immediately suggests other things. It suggests a roaring lion. Mm. It then suggests a screaming warrior, shouting warrior. And that's how Leonardo worked, by lateral splashing, as it were, mm. that he'd have a, a visual intuition about something and it would move out laterally. And what that took him into was not just fixed signs of the face, you know, the, the things that don't move, mm. but it took him into what you would call pathonomics, not physiognomics. That's to say the expressions. So he's really the first person who combines the two, the fixed signs of the face in terms of character personality, but what he called uh, the motions of the mind mm. and how that infuses every aspect of our face and our hands and so on. Uh, that's an incredible drawing. And that's one mode of exploring the, the relationship between animals and humans. And philosophy in the early modern world was much preoccupied by it. And in the book, you've got sort of two, I suppose, prevailing and opposing theories, one of which is the Cartesian view that animals were simply machines, and if they seemed to exhibit pain, they weren't really exhibiting pain. Another one is the Montaigne's view, which believes that animals have nobility and are capable of feeling sentiments. And those seem strong rivals in that period. These arguments on either side that animals are basically soulless machines, which of course is consistent in some way with Christianity in that we have divine souls but heaven isn't full of uh, redeemed animals against the I think basically more human reaction when people deal with animals that they do have spirits they have personalities and they're more like us than um, than that theory would suggest that competes all the way through and it's still running post-Darwin mm. it, it, it runs through uh, say Frankenstein, Mary Shelley, and it goes right into the modern day. And the machine intelligence, of course, we're still mm. discussing, you know, can machines really be like humans? Can computers ultimately think like human beings, be creative, have emotions, etc., etc.? So this is a great polarity. And uh, yeah, I get, I do it in the book via Montaigne, the great French 16th century philosopher, mm. and Descartes in, 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 the, in, in the 17th century. And they stand at the ends of this particular spectrum. It seemed to me that the argument hadn't yet been really resolved because we still have debates about the legal status of farm animals and factory farming and whether they're truly sentient or whether they're classified as agricultural goods. So, you know, it's, it's dangerous to feel too superior, I think, to, to some of the, the questions because they're, yeah. they're still alive. What, in a sense, surprised me as I was going through the book was to find that what I was conceiving as a historical book resonated 
into all sorts of areas and that the question of our animal nature or our above animal nature, animals' natures in relation to humans, all these things are still absolutely there. And hardly a day goes by without something being reported on the radio and somebody saying, like animals. I think you counsel against trying to see the book or read, read the whole of history teleologically with um, Darwin as the, the ultimate end, but it's quite hard not to do that because as empirical evidence and as science and comparative anatomy grow, there is a sense that, that people are kind of resisting the inevitable, that the inevitable conclusion is that we are part of a continuum, but, but no one's quite ready to come out and say that until Darwin. Yes, the earlier parts of the book I always had to sort of say to myself, don't look at this via Darwin. Mm. And if you look at earlier images of wild uh, people, wild men, they're almost mm. always called men, primitive men as conceived, they're not on the whole like apes. They're big, they're hairy, they're raw, they're kind of primitive in a general sense. Uh, but it's striking that they're not uh, simian, they're not ape-like in any way. And uh, it does show that the thinking is different. So all the time, you, as a historian, you're having to say, let's not get the Darwin filter imposed upon, upon the earlier periods. After Darwin, as soon as a primitive family are shown, they're shown as ape-like. Mm. Um, they're always shown as miserable. So yes, it's a funny it's thing uh, that uh, the, the, these, are, these are early races of man, the wild men, are fairly happy. Mm. You know, they have a good time. They live in nature and they have, fun. they have a thoroughly good time. The, the ape men, on the other hand, are clearly sitting there waiting for evolution to happen. They're, mm. they're like kind of Neanderthal bag, bag women and mm. bag, bag men. <laughs> it's a very strange, strange thing. And the 19th century, as you said, was, was fascinated by all these other races and you know, all these sort of you know, the search for missing links and, and so on was something that both in popular culture and in, in science was, was quite an obsession really in museums and so on. 19th century in some ways is the age of classification. Of course, Aristotle and other mm. people are classified and Linnaeus famously mm. laid down the system of classification for plants and animals. Mm. But the 19th century was the great era of the hunter-gatherers in a way in terms of uh, scientists who simply accumulated vast numbers of, of items of objects from all around the world and then put them in mm. classificatory orders photography helped a lot with that because you could then have records mm. if you had to draw them all and engrave them all this is a big job but you could accumulate masses of photographs of human types galton who i don't discuss in any detail in the book tried to put all these types into order, including criminal types, mm. and tried to come up with a kind of er-criminal head, you know, so you could... Yes. And Lombroso, the, the great criminologist, used all this science, this classificatory science, to differentiate between the criminal type in terms of morphological features, mm. features of the cranium. Um, mm. It's an extraordinary enterprise. It looks like very, very hard science, but it's it's without serious foundation yes. but it's it, there's a lot of counting goes on a lot of mm. measuring and of course once you count and measure it looks like serious science but it ultimately crumbled it didn't it didn't sort of it didn't hold up it sort of it doesn't it, under scrutiny it didn't hold up but we we somehow don't quite shake it off mm. um you know, i wonder how many of us have not looked at somebody and and thought you know, this person's jabbering like a monkey or so on it's, mm. uh, it's a bad thing to think but uh, uh I think if we're honest that uh, we all have to pull ourselves back from yes. uh, what a very deep-seated and ingrained prejudice is. 
Do you think it's a coping mechanism that's, that we've evolved, or a way of making sense of the world so it's not just a, a sea of, of data that we can't sort of navigate our way through? I think what is happening in these areas is that we've got absolutely necessary mechanisms. We have to assess someone, an animal, a person we encounter pretty quickly. We have to see, are they hostile, are they friendly, what is their demeanour? We, we do all that instantly. We're not always right, but uh, it's absolutely necessary and you have to react quickly. And there's a profound evolutionary things there. What I think we have done, which other animals where it works much more functionally, is we've embedded that in a cultural context. Mm. So it's got overlaid, intermingled with a lot of other conscious cultural stuff, unconscious cultural mm. stuff. So the byproduct of these very useful evolutionary tools we have for making a rapid assessment of, uh, of what we're confronted with have ended up by spilling out into masses of other areas and really getting out of control. And I was thinking Islam has an aniconographic tradition where you cannot depict humans and, and animals. And I wondered if that was another way of dealing with the things that we fear. It seemed to me that in the Western tradition we're dealing with the, the sort of sexuality and the violence that animals display and, and coping with it either by categorizing it, distancing ourselves from it, laughing at it. And Islam, they're, they're, they're sort of simply closing off that possibility. But is it, do you think it's a manifestation of the same complex of, of worries that, that humans have had? The way that Islam and indeed uh, other religions at various points, including the Protestant reformers, have got mm. rid of figurative representations is obviously uh, the primary motivation is theological of the forbidding of a likeness mm. of a god who you cannot conceive as a god is not something mm. that can be pictured but i think you're right in as much as it helps enormously if we don't have to turn god or the the saintly figures into real figures because they then become human and we begin to react to them in this in this human way Mm. I think Michelangelo, towards the end of his career, faced this dilemma. He found it very difficult to portray the face of Christ. Because once you do so, you turn Christ into a, another person with a slightly overlarge nose or, mm. or thin lips or thick lips or whatever, and you're in the area of individuality. And mm. in a sense, the deity is above uh, these individual quirks. So I think it's a nice idea that uh, those societies which do not allow depictions of the divinity, don't face the problem in a way of um, the particularization of the divine people in terms of individual humans. And with the 20th century and Freud and psychoanalysis, there's a whole new layer of, of depth and complexity that comes into it, it, it seemed. Yeah, in the book, I decided not to do the whole 20th century Freudian mm. thing. That seemed to me to be a, another mm. book once you opened it up into, yes. that, into that area. And um, so I went as far as Bram Stoker and Dracula and uh, Robert Louis Stevenson mm. and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and took that into the filmic era because it seemed to me that was essentially traditional. It mm. wasn't really Freudian and uh, the films of Dr. Jekyll are not really Freudian in a sense. They're based upon these sort of 19th century notions of types. But uh, the Freudian... Yes, is absolutely vast in this area, and uh, of course the art from surrealism onwards becomes very complicated, and uh, so uh, I thought it was prudent not to try to do everything. Martin Kemp. The Human Animal in Western Art and Science is available from Chicago University Press. 
you can find out more about it on their website. And do visit thehedgehogandthefox.com for news of forthcoming and archive interviews in this series. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.